amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Now, Ross Kaminsky on KOA, 850 AM, 94.1 FM, and on iHeartRadio. Let's do this. I'm Ross. Thanks for spending a little time with me. We have an immense amount of stuff to get through today. Uh, the first thing I want to mention is actually the most important story by a long way, but I'm not going to spend very much time on it. I just want to make sure to note it and to, and to recognize publicly that it's the most important story. And this is not leading up to some kind of Ross deadpan joke. Headline from the Washington Post. U.S. debt eclipses $34 trillion for the first time. Roughly three months after the debt first hit $33 trillion. In three months, we added another trillion dollars. This is an increase of not just, you know, a trillion in three months. It's an increase of more than two trillion, more than two and a half trillion from our debt level of just a year ago. And this is the biggest political sin that our so-called leaders have foisted upon us for decades now, but especially the past couple of decades both parties, but one part, one party is much worse, but Trump was very bad. Joe Biden has been a disaster beyond imagination when it comes to spending. Thank goodness that Republicans have majority, even if a small one, in the House of Representatives to more or less, you know, control spending. Uh, they're, they can't do everything. They can't stop it completely because there is some stuff that still needs to get done. And politics is the art of the possible. And Democrats still control of the Senate and Democrats still control the White House. So it's not like they can wave a magic wand and somehow be great. And it's not as if Republicans have been great in recent years anyway. But I, when I hear stories like this, and when I see this story today, th there's probably nothing that makes me more angry at my government than this. $34 trillion of debt that is going to come crashing down on the heads of my children and their eventual children. And all these people, uh, the Washington Post says, economists are sharply divided over the danger posed by the federal debt. No, they're not. There are, a, uh, or at least not evenly, there are some kind of wacky economists who live in this world of something called modern monetary theory who, who argue that it doesn't matter. I think they're insane. But here's the other thing. What if we're just not sure, like, will our national debt destroy the country or won't it? Even if you thought 
It was 50-50 either way. 50-50 chance that it's no problem at all. How Whatever our debt level is, no problem at all. That's 50% chance, just in my hypothetical. I don't think it actually is. And the other 50% is it's going to you know, turn us into Greece. And we'll have something close to a national bankruptcy, and we won't be able to borrow money again for a long time, and we'll monetize our debt, and the currency will crash, and and people will be much, 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 much poorer for a long time. Let's say that's 50%. You really make that bet? Oh, it's 50-50. Let's see what happens. No. This is an absolute sin. All right. I want to move on to Harvard for a second. We learned yesterday, and I talked about it briefly on the show yesterday, that Harvard President Claudine Gay resigned. And that's good. I want to say just a couple of things. One, I said that during the search process, it'll be interesting to see whether they come up with somebody who actually has made strong statements, believable statements against not just anti-Semitism, but well, against anti-Semitism would be a good start. But that's not really the main problem Harvard has. Harvard's main problem is an unbelievable lack of commitment to free speech, even though in her resignation letter, Claudine Gay talked about having a commitment to an our is a quote, our enduring commitment to open inquiry and free expression in the pursuit of truth. Now, Harvard just got the lowest score any university has ever gotten from an organization called FIRE. Uh, foundation for individual rights and expression, I think. The, the last, the E in fire used to stand for education and they broadened out to be not just about free speeches on campus, even though it's still a big area of focus for them. Harvard got a zero. No school has ever gotten a zero before on this kind of survey they do where you earn points based on the amount of free speech allowed in your college in various categories. They got a zero. Uh, it's never happened before. And this is really what Harvard needs to focus on. Here's the other thing that I think is important and that people just aren't talking about enough. And, and I think people aren't talking about it enough because they don't know. And that is Claudine Gay only got this job because she's a black woman. A ultra woke black woman. Sorry if that offends some people. But let me just give you a sense of this. You, you would think she was, I think, dean of faculty at Harvard. Shouldn't have been that either. A professor at Harvard and became president. So you would think with that kind of resume, she'd have an incredible track list of academic achievement. And in particular, what that means in her world is publishing. Over about 20 years, Claudine Gay has written, according to the American Enterprise Institute, 10 journal articles and zero books. On the journal article side, that's about half the average rate for a political science professor, even at a middling university. By comparison, Amy Gutman, who is also a political scientist, and served as president of the University of Pennsylvania until last year when this gal named McGill, who recently resigned, took over as president. But the previous president of Penn, also a female political scientist, has written over 100 articles and more than a dozen books. In her last article, 
published six years ago, titled A Room for One's Own, Ms. Gay found that Democratic governors direct federal housing subsidies to, cons to supportive constituencies when they have the discretion to do so. Wow, amazing that she figured that out. In another one called Knowledge Matters, Ms. Gay found that political ignorance is a key reason why African Americans support Democrats despite policy disagreements. Oh, who knew? And by the way, that would be true of, of any group supporting any party frequently. In Seeing Difference, she found that African Americans resent economically successful Hispanic neighbors. Wow, breaking news. Who knew that? Again, this is from AEI.org. Unbelievable. One other thing I want to mention. There is a truly brilliant guy at Harvard named Roland Fryer. He is a young black economist, won a MacArthur Genius of or no, a, um, a Clark Medal as the most brilliant economist under the age of 40. He's a non-woke black guy who just looks at the actual data and tells the truth. And Claudine Gay, when she was serving as a dean of faculty at Harvard, and I'm quoting from AEI, led the charge to strip Mr. Fryer of almost all of his academic privileges on trumped up charges of having run an office with a, quote, hostile work environment. And what this was really about is that is that Roland Fryer did research on uh, police killings of black people and found that there were not the racial disparities of black people versus white people being killed by police that the left was saying. And he wrote this up in a major academic paper. And of course, the ultra woke Claudine Gay hated it. So she tried to stomp him when she was dean of faculty at Harvard. She had no business ever getting anywhere near that job. And it'll be really interesting to see if Harvard chooses someone better. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Johnny come lately The new kid in town Everybody loves you so don't let them down Alright, happy Wednesday, I'm Ross My next guest is not the new kid in town But I'm sure he's hoping that everybody loves him uh, Mike Lynch Represents House District 65 in the State House of Representatives. He's the House Minority Leader. He's a graduate of West Point. He wears a very big cowboy hat. And uh, he is now, as of this morning, officially a candidate for Colorado's 4th Congressional District, the seat that is currently held by Ken Buck, who announced that he will not run again. Mike, welcome back to KOA. It's good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Ross. Always a pleasure. 
Uh, all right, a few quick questions for you. Um, I, I've known for some time that you were thinking about this, and you took until now to announce it. So was this a difficult decision for you? What, tell us a little bit about you know what went on inside the brain of Mike Lynch when making this decision. Well, um, yeah, anytime you're doing something that could impact your family as much as this can, it's, uh, you know, you got to think about it. Uh, it. And plus, I'm doing a lot of good things down at the Capitol, and do I want to walk away from that? Um, uh, and then also, you know, looking at the field, uh, all those things played into it. Um, so I, I don't know if it's, you know, strategy or timing, but, you know, it's more about what was the best decision for my family, to be honest with you. It's a very very interesting district. Geographically, it's mostly rural. Population-wise, it's mostly Douglas County. Um, how do you try to appeal, you personally, you know, how do you appeal to enough of both to win? Yeah, you know, it's very similar. It, it's a kind of a blow-up of the current district that I represent, so which has a, a mix of both of those. Um, so I, I think it's the same, the, you know, the same stuff I'm used to doing, which I'm real active on, on ag issues down at the Capitol, um, but, but also real active with business issues and, and, um, you know, Northern Colorado's, my old district, 49, was the fastest growing area in the state. So, um, I'm used to, you know, the demographics of this, but, but do understand that this is a, you know, this is about as diverse of a district as you can think of when you consider the, the hinterlands of, of Baca and Sedgwick, and then you combine that with, you know, the largest HOA in the nation. So, um, it's similar to what I've already been doing, to be honest with you. Partly because the district is geographically large and partly because at least some of it is a very expensive media market, you're going to need to raise a lot of money probably to, yeah. Win the the nomination. I, I I think it's very likely. I won't say anything's a hundred percent. I think it's very likely that whoever wins the Republican nomination will win the general election. So winning the nomination is the thing. Um, are you going to be able to raise enough money to do that? Are you got someone who's going to write you a million dollar check, or how, how's this going to go? Right. Well, you know, it's unfortunate that. Um, that politics has been distilled down to raising a bunch of money, but yeah, that was that was one of the factors. I wanted to make sure that uh, that I had the support that I've had in the past, and and, and you know multiply that times ten or twenty or. 50 or whatever it's going to take in this race. But, um, yeah, that was part of the calculus that went into it. And I feel really good about that. I have, I have, I've been looking for roadblocks and that is somebody saying, heck no, I'm going to give the million dollars to somebody else. And I haven't, I haven't seen that yet. So I'm encouraged by the, by the folks that have, that, that have said, Hey, we're going to get behind you financially. And, and, um, unfortunately it means I'm going to be smiling and dialing a lot, but yeah. that's, uh, Unfortunately, that's, the, that's the game down. you're playing. Yeah, that's the game you're playing. Yeah. So um, would I be correct to assume that at least one of your top issues is the border? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, which is which is really an extension of the work I've been doing with fentanyl down at the Capitol. Um, really to to, you know, to. To fix it at the state level is one thing, but to really fix it, you know, we've got to stop it from even getting here. I mean, uh, we don't have to worry about helping people if they've never been introduced to the stuff. So that is, by all means, you know, at the top of the list. Um, I wouldn't say it's. I wouldn't say that that, that is everything that this district is concerned with you know we've got a lot of water issues a lot of ag issues a lot of um you know just 
there's 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 stuff besides the border, but that is the obvious easy one that um, that has to be dealt with immediately. What what would be your other top issue in Congress? Yeah, you know, honestly, honestly, water. You know, that has become such an issue for our ag folks on the on the Eastern Plains, and and the Feds are involved in that. You know, they are what's holding up the the NISP project, the Northern Colorado Integration Supply Project, which is was in my old district and affects my current district. Um, you know, the Feds are the ones that are kind of holding that up right now, and the, and that water makes its way out to our our ag users out in the Eastern Plains. And so, you know, from a from what you can do to Impacts Colorado at the federal level. It by all means is, um, you know, water is, is going to be huge for those guys. All right, last uh, last quick question, which I'm sure you knew I was going to ask. Somebody else just jumped into this race a couple of days ago, who comes in with the highest name ID probably of anybody in the race. You know, parachuting in from another district. Uh, I'm not even going to use her name. I'll just say I came out very aggressively against her on the radio yesterday, even though I had supported her in the past. Supported her in the past. Some you know in the previous district. Uh, how do you want us to think about that? You know, th- that is unfortunate in that it turns this into political theater and really takes takes the conversation away from those issues and now, you know, turns it into a spectacle. Uh, that's the only the downside I see to that. I mean, uh, you can, I'm, I'm all for a free market uh, uh, election system, and if folks want to jump in here, that's fine. I, I obviously have wide eyes on, on how this process works and understand that, you know, anybody that that is eligible can run for it. So and it's unfortunate because it it turns it more into a spectacle than the you know the ten candidates already did. Um, but it, obviously, I knew that before I announced, and mm-hmm. it wasn't a deterrent. Um, it, it, it hasn't slowed down a, um, that much at, at all. And folks have, quite frankly, it's wonderful for fundraising. Interesting. All right, uh, last thing: what's a website where people can learn more about you and your campaign? You bet. Lynch for Colorado. It's F-O-R Colorado.com. L-Y-N-C-H-F-O-R Colorado.com. Mike Lynch, thanks for your time and keep fighting the power down at the legislature as well. Thank you, Ross. We'll be talking more about fentanyl coming up. Okay. Looking forward to it. When we come back, hoarder. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Bruce. Well, I don't know if you've seen the TV show Hoarders on A&E. I've seen it. Uh, and it's... 
it's it's really something. I mean, just to see the conditions in which these folks live and their inability to overcome whatever it is in their psychology that it causes them to be in that. And and, you know, if you've never seen the show, you might think there's something funny about it, but it's not really funny. It's it's more intense and even tragic sometimes. And actually, there's a new season of Hoarders that is starting next Monday, 6 p.m. our time, Mountain Time, um, on A&E. And then they stream the day after they they broadcast on A&E. Joining us to talk about a lot of this stuff is Dr. David Tolan. He's the founder and director of the Anxiety Disorders Center at the Institute for Living. He's an adjunct professor of psychiatry at the Yale University School of Medicine, and he's a frequent guest psychologist on the TV show Hoarders. Uh, Doc, thanks so much for, for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Ross. You know, before we jump into the medical psychological stuff, I actually want to start, I, I, I um, inspired myself with my opening comments. I want to start with a personal question for you. Uh, I mean, you do sure. this for a living, you're a psychologist for a living, but how, how difficult mm-hmm. is it for you when you see and meet these people who are struggling with whatever the technical term is that you would call their, their hoarding? How hard is this for you? Yeah. Well, that's a great question. And, and, you know, Ross, I, I would love to tell you that on every single episode of Hoarders, I am totally level headed and have my act together and know exactly what I'm doing. But the fact of the matter is sometimes I've become impatient. I'm working on that. Um, but it's very easy when, when you get somebody who is so stuck in a pattern of behavior and so obviously self-destructive, um, it, it can really bring up a, a mix of emotions. And, and so if you're watching the show and you're feeling that mix of emotion, just know some of us on the other side of the camera are having the exact same reaction. Um, you know, it, it's hard because you, you see these people suffering so miserably and it almost seems like the answer is so simple. Yeah. You know, hey, just throw that stuff out. Right. Um, and of course, it's not simple. I mean, any more than the solution to alcohol is, hey, just stop drinking. It, well, okay, yes. But there's a big process that goes into this, and it, it's a very hard behavior to get a hold of. And once the person has sunk into severe hoarding disorder, you're dealing with a whole slew of issues, not just the stuff, but the attachment to the stuff and the motivation to change behavior and even the awareness that the problem exists. So it often feels, you know, from my perspective, like I'm kind of swimming upstream trying to, to tackle something very challenging. So let's focus on the attachment piece for, for a moment. One of my colleagues here, Gina, who does the show before mine, um, wanted me to ask you, and I don't know if there's a generalizable answer, what are they attached to? In other words, are they attached to a physical thing or are they attached to an emotion that is attached to a physical thing? Oh, I love it, Ross. You're asking the good ones here. Um, I think that that you're really onto something, which is that the attachment might seem like it's toward an object. But really, the attachment is much more toward how this object makes me feel right now. And for some of us, it makes me feel like I'm being responsible because I'm hanging on to something that might be useful. So I feel responsible for doing that. For other people, the attachment is more sentimental 
you know, and I'm hanging on to this because it reminds me of a good time in my life or a good person that I knew. And so throwing it away, I, I certainly wouldn't want to do that because I'd be throwing away all those good memories. But in each case, I think what's happening is that I'm responding not so much to the object in front of me, but rather I'm responding to how it makes me feel in the moment. And, and, and I, I, I emphasize in the moment because like with so many other problem behaviors, it is kind of short term gain for very long term pain. You know, so we, when we feel really crummy, we start scrambling for a way to feel better quickly. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes that's not a good thing. And in the case of hoarding, it's really not a good thing because you just start adding more and more and more onto the problem, which you feel worse and worse and worse about. And the only way that you know how to make yourself feel better is to go get more stuff. And so the problem just keeps going around and around and around. All right. So, uh, you're not aware of this, but I'm president of the bad analogy club. So, um, I, it, are, are, is what you're describing something along the lines of somebody whose life is fairly miserable? They feel a little better when they take some heroin. And then after that, yep. the only thing that makes them feel better is more heroin and possibly even in increasing quantities until the point that even that isn't making them feel better any, feeling better anymore. I think, Ross, that's actually a very good analogy. Um, now, I, I don't think that hoarding necessarily is biologically the same thing as mm -hmm. an addiction, mm -hmm. but we can use the same understanding, which is, yeah, I mean, it is, it is a short-term relief from distress at a great long-term cost. So just like using heroin might make me feel a little bit better in the short term, collecting some stuff might make me feel a little better in the short term, but the damage that that behavior causes only serves to make me feel worse and worse and worse in the long run. We're talking with Dr. David Tolan. He's frequent uh, guest psychologist who you'll see on the TV show Hoarders, which starts a new season next Monday at 6 p.m. Mountain Time on A&E. So not every episode of Hoarders has a happy ending. Um, it's very realistic. No, I wish in that they way. did, but no, they don't. They don't always. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to pick one category of ending to ask you about. Uh, what percentage yeah. of the time where the show has a happy ending as far as what we see, by which I mean somehow you get the person to agree to let their home be cleaned up and they move back into a home that is more or less a normal looking mm -hmm. home. What percentage of the time do those people continue to live that way versus having a hoarding relapse? I'm really glad that you asked that question, Ross, because that is a question that up until now had not been answered. So I would do all these hoarder shows and, and people would say, yeah, I saw you on the show and you were working with this person and, and that all seemed to go well. But how are they doing now? A year later or two years later or five years later, are they better? And my answer was always, I don't know. But this season, uh, we, we have a new feature on Hoarders, uh, a series of special episodes called Where Are They Now? In which we're going to go back and revisit people that we've worked with in the past to see, are, well, are, did you stay better or are you, are you not doing well? Did you slide back into your old patterns of behavior? And I don't want to spoil it, but I, 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 I think it's probably not a big spoiler to say it's, it's a mixed bag. Uh, I think some people do really well in the long term and there are other people who slide back. All right. So give me. Very quick answers to two listener questions, and then I'll have one more of my question for you. Um, could it be you an attachment it. to things you didn't have as a child? 
It could be. I, you know, again, I think the idea is it's it's really however that object makes you feel that you get hooked on that feeling. Mm-hmm. And if if having the comfort of something you didn't have as a child is what makes you feel good or better in the moment, then sure, that that could be absolutely what you get hooked on. Uh, listener Sean wants to know if hoarding is a form of OCD. Ah, you know, we used to think of it that way. Um, and then increasingly, and I, I was originally an OCD researcher, which is kind of how I slid into the, the study of hoarding disorder. I think increasingly, the more we learned about hoarding, the more we realized that it didn't really resemble OCD in a lot of very meaningful ways. And so in 2013, the American Psychiatric Association finally recognized hoarding disorder as its own psychiatric diagnosis. So we now don't think of it as being OCD. I have about one minute left with you. For my own listeners, how should they try to ascertain whether someone they care about has crossed some line into hoarding disorder? And if they think that person has crossed a line, what can someone do to help someone they care about? Great question. Well, we think that it probably crosses the line at functioning. So if you have a lot of stuff and you're functioning fine, we usually would say that's not hoarding. But if you are saving up a lot of stuff and it's causing you to no longer be able to cook in your kitchen or no longer be able to sleep in your bed or use your bathroom because of the clutter, that's when we know it's crossed the line. But you also don't have to wait for it to cross that line before you do something about it. And I think if you have a loved one or somebody you care about who seems to be engaging in this kind of behavior, one, I would say don't argue with them. But have a, 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 a reasonable conversation with them about your concerns and encourage them to seek help. Dr. David Tolan, uh, adjunct professor of psychiatry at Yale and frequent uh, guest psychologist on the TV show Hoarders. New season starts next Monday at 6 p.m. Mountain Time on A&E and is available to stream online on the Tuesdays after the Monday broadcast. Doc, thanks so much. It was a fascinating conversation. It's a fascinating show. And and, and I can I, I can't even really I was going to say I can only imagine, but I can't even really imagine what it must be like for you personally. Um, to do all, all that. Just tremendous stories. And thanks for doing what you do. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for having me, Ross. Glad to do it. Glad to do it. All right, folks. Uh, that's Dr. Tolan. And gosh, I hope you found that fascinating. I could have talked with him for much longer, but he had to get on to his, his next, his next thing. So anyway, gosh, that was fascinating. Oh, I need to offer uh, an apology and a correction. Yesterday, when I was talking about Lauren Boebert leaving the 3rd Congressional District and running for the 4th Congressional District now, I gave the, I assigned the wrong first name to the guy who's probably the leading candidate now in the 3rd Congressional District. And I called him Will Hurd. His name is Jeff Hurd. He's been in studio with me, and I text with the dude, and I just had a brain cramp. And, of course, there is a politician named Will Hurd from Texas, former Republican congressman who tried to run for president and did get, didn't get very far. And I like that dude, and I like Jeff Hurd, too. And they're both kind of moderate Republicans and whatever. But I just want to issue a, a big apology to Jeff Hurd for giving him the wrong first name yesterday. 
And there you go. I, I, I think there's a decent chance that Jeff Hurd will be the Republican nominee in the third congressional district. We'll see. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm liking him so far. Uh, we'll talk about that more some other day, but I just, I, I felt bad about, he, he actually texted me. He's like, dude, you, you called me the wrong first name. I'm like, oh no. I know why I did it, but that doesn't mean it's okay. So there you go. There you go. Uh, what else? Donald Trump is appealing. Um, I don't mean he's appealing, you know, the way that Marilyn Monroe might have been appealing. What I mean is he's appealing the decision to a state court in Maine, the decision of the secretary of state in Maine, who is a very partisan Democrat, uh, that she used the Colorado decision to say that Donald Trump cannot be on the ballot in Maine. So Donald Trump's attorneys have now appealed this to a state court in Maine. The order from the Secretary of State will not go into effect until after the court has heard this case, and then it'll probably be held if there's some further appeal as well. But, uh, you know, I actually want to share with you a little bit from National Review which summarizes the Trump legal team's arguments against the Secretary of State for Maine. Uh, four points. The Secretary was a biased decision maker who should have recused herself and otherwise failed to provide lawful due process. So I think that's right. The Secretary had no legal authority to consider the federal constitutional issues presented by the challengers. So that might be right. And I think it, it, I think it probably is right, but I think that is a key question that the federal Supreme Court needs to answer. In other words, if a candidate for federal office is going to be disqualified based on the 14th Amendment provisions that say if you have taken a prior oath of office to the Constitution and then committed insurrection against the United States, you're ineligible, who gets to decide whether the person, in fact, engaged in insurrection. Can an, it, one secretary of state of the opposing political party decide we're just not going to allow this person on the ballot? That's something that the federal Supreme Court needs to make clear once and for all. Number three, the secretary made multiple errors of law and acted in an arbitrary and capricious manner. That's probably right, too. And President Trump will be illegally excluded from the ballot as a result of the secretary's actions. That's sort of the summary of the other points and the effect of them. And I think that's right, too. I have no idea what the state court will say uh, in in Maine. But we saw what the Supreme Court said here in Colorado. I think they got it wrong, but we'll see. We don't even know for sure that the federal Supreme Court will hear the case. If, if the federal Supreme Court declines to hear the case, and by the way, I don't think that's the most likely thing, but if the federal Supreme Court declined to hear the case, then Trump would be off the ballot in Colorado uh, and maybe in Maine. We'd have to see how that plays out in the state courts there. But in any case, I wanted you to be aware that, that Trump is appealing that. And, you know, I, I think I've made the case pretty well from my position as an anti-Trumper at this point, that he should be on the ballot. And these choice I've said consistently, these choices need to be left up to voters. And I just want to share very briefly a couple of sections from a piece by Bill Barr, who is a, who was Donald Trump's attorney general, 
and is now anti-Trump and wrote a piece for the free press, thefp.com. The headline is, I oppose Trump and any efforts to ban him from the ballot. And again, I think I've made this case already pretty well, but Barr is, Bill Barr is, is much more credible on matters of law than I am. I mean, he's, I'm giving you my opinion and he can give you his opinion, but he was attorney general of the United States and I wasn't. So he says that I'm firmly opposed to Trump's candidacy. While I think it's critical that the Biden administration be, pardon me, be beaten at the polls, Trump is not the answer. He's not capable of winning the decisive victory Republicans need to advance conservative principles. And I think that's a very good way to frame it. He's not saying Trump can't possibly win the election. He's saying Trump probably cannot win the decisive election that would carry on, carry along a, a lot of House and Senate seats with, with it in order to be able to advance Republican goals. And I think that's true. Barr says his truculent, petty, and toxic persona, unconstrained by any need to face the voters again, will damage the country. But, he says, I also believe that the efforts to knock him off the ballot are legally untenable, politically counterproductive, and most ominously destructive of our political order. The Supreme Court needs to act swiftly to strike down these foolish decisions. Then he goes through and talks about what happens in Maine. He talks about what happens in Colorado. He talks about older federal court precedent. And we've talked about it briefly. I won't get into all the nuts and bolts, but there was a case called Henry Griffin in which Salmon P. Chase, who was chief justice of the Supreme Court at the time, but was acting as presiding judge for a circuit court, the District of Virginia Circuit Court. So it wasn't a Supreme Court case, even though the Supreme Court chief justice decided it. He ruled, it gets a little complicated in that case, but he, he ruled in a way that arguably would be helpful to Trump in this situation. That's all I'm going to all I'm going to say on it right now. And then the point, the, the bigger point is, is this the half-baked processes in Colorado and Maine, I'm quoting Barr, underscore the wisdom of the conclusion in that previous case that I described to you that enforcement of disqualification based on engaging in insurrection must be restricted to a mechanism enacted by Congress. Our national elections could collapse in chaos if each state were able to disqualify a national candidate using its own procedures and evidentiary standards and its own definitions of what it means to engage in insurrection. During the Vietnam War, for example, protesters would shut down recruitment offices or otherwise act to interfere with the war effort. Was that insurrection? Under the definition embraced in Maine, it easily could be. Some of the violent actions taken against law enforcement by leftist demonstrators during the summer of 2020. I, well, I've talked about that as well. And I don't mean that uh, somebody who was violent, but what about somebody who just supported the people who were violent? Is that engaging in insurrection? Uh, right, the way that Trump supported the people who ran to the Capitol? In any case, I think... This is an important argument. I think we haven't heard the last of it, and we shouldn't hear the last of it. And I maintain my position that Donald Trump must absolutely be allowed on the ballot. And I sure hope that the voters of Colorado and other places will support somebody else. Not Joe Biden, but a different Republican. 
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now, Ross Kaminsky. On KOA. 850 AM, 94.1 FM, and on iHeartRadio. And now, an hour later than we normally do on Wednesdays, because I have a different guest coming up in an hour, we are going to do the very special segment. Now you know. Produced audio bumper brought to you by the man himself, Chad Power, who did his own audio. Intrepid newsman Chad Power from our KOA news team. Hi, Chad. Good morning. You said you're, you're always very, you, you always play your cards very close to your chest when I ask you what we're going to talk yes. about. I don't, want you, I don't want you Googling anything. Yeah, right. So I asked you today what we're going to talk about, and you said war. Uh, and I'm thinking it's not my favorite card game. Um, by Star? What's that? The song? Star? Or, or the, yeah, the, you know, there, there's just, there's a lot of choices. So which version of war are we talking about? And what did we not know? Well, most wars last years, some decades, some even longer, like the Hundred Years War. Mm -hmm. But do you know what the shortest war in history was? Wow. Does it have to have been a declared war? So... Not, the first thing that came into my head was the U.S. invasion of Grenada under Ronald Reagan. That was a very, but I, I don't know. That was that, brief. I, I don't know if that counts as a war. Um, I, I, I don't know. Do you? I do. It is the, and they say it's very little known, so don't, don't feel bad that you don't know about uh -huh. this. It's the Anglo-Zanzibar War of 1896. So we know it must have lasted less than a year if it only has one Right. I'll get to how long it lasted, but I know that you're familiar with the uh, illegal land Zanzibar Treaty between Britain and Germany from 1890. <laughs> of course. Who isn't? Who which, yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> which drew up spheres of influence in East Africa. So the British got control of Zanzibar. Mm -hmm. Germany had Tanzania. And so what Britain then did was they put in a puppet sultan to run Zanzibar for them. All right. And all so, right. So things went all Zanzibar, by the way, is a bunch of little islands or not so little islands off the off the coast of um, Eastern Africa. Yes. I have not. Been, I know where it is, but I haven't been there. And have so you been there? I have not been all to right. Africa at all. All right. And so this guy, things were, went, ran well for three years. Things were smooth in Zanzibar. But yeah. then this guy, the sultan's cousin, poisoned him, killed him and took over. 
and Britain did not want this guy in charge because and they said, hey, step down or there's going to be some consequences. And so this guy said, nope. I'm not doing it. And so they happened to have a couple of warships in the harbor, mm -hmm. and they quickly sent a couple of more. And so just a couple of days later, they gave this guy an ultimatum saying, get out of the palace or by 9 a.m. the next day, or we're going to start the artillery coming at you. Mm -hmm. And he responded by saying, we have no intention of hauling down our flag, and we do not believe that you would open fire on us. <laughs> Oops. Au contraire. <laughs> Au contraire. So <laughs> next morning at 9 o'clock, he was still there. Mm -hmm. So Britain started shelling this palace. And two minutes later, they had already destroyed this guy's artillery. He fled. And then they stopped the shelling, and the war was over at 9.38 a.m. So it was a total war of 38 minutes. <laughs> but believe it or not, there, it was still oh very deadly. Five. This guy had 3,000 uh, supporters or troops. 500 yeah. were killed. Really? And one British soldier was injured in the in the conflict. And so then this guy managed to escape. Germany helped him escape, and they sent him to Tanzania. And so you think he got off scot-free. Mm -hmm. But so this happened in 1896. In 1916, uh, British forces invaded East Africa, captured this guy. 20 years later, they, they captured him and sent him to St. Helena, in exile. So it took 20 years, but they got this guy. And that's one of the places where Napoleon was sent. I believe for, so, For yes. exile. Okay, so you said 500 people in 38 minutes. So that would be one person killed every four seconds for 38 minutes. Right. One person killed every four seconds in the world's, yeah. in the world's shortest war. Yeah. Wow. Yep, the... Anglo-Zanzibar War of 1896 wow. is generally considered, so I mean, I don't know if somebody might dispute this, but it's generally considered the, the shortest war of all time. Chad, I did not know that. Well, now you know. Now you know. <laughs> I just love that audio. Uh, <laughs> one, one last quick comment. Uh, I grew up thanks to my dad, collecting stamps. Mm -hmm. And I still have a whole bunch of stamps from from Zanzibar. And and what year did you say, 1896? 1896. It wouldn't surprise me if I have stamps from Zanzibar that have the picture of, like, the dude before his cousin killed him. Yes. Um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if I have stamps with that guy's pictures, picture the, on it. The Sultan Hamad bin Thuwaini. That was the guy. Yeah. Well, we all knew that. You didn't even need to True. That's say. Common knowledge. Yeah, common knowledge. That doesn't even fall into the well now you know thing, because I tell my kids that at bedtime stories. Intrepid Chad Bauer, thanks for another fantastic well now you know. You just, you really got the high quality continuing every time we do this. Well, let's hope we can keep it up in 2024. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely sure we can. We're off to a great start right there. Thank you, Chad. You bet.
All right, that was really, really fun. Well, now you know. All right, we have an immense amount of stuff still to do on the show, including some guests not in this hour, but in the next hour, one of whom is a professor of medical engineering at MIT who is leading a team that used AI to develop the first new class of antibiotics in something like 60 years. I think that sounds uh, that sounds about right. Anyway, we have lots and lots of other stuff still to do, so just keep it here on KOA. I'm, I'm Ross. I enjoy your company so don't amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals from courses to help you attain or retain certification to individualized coaching services to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen management concepts optimizes your professional development online in person individually or groups it's training that's measurably better Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Go anywhere. We still have a ton of stuff to do today. It's one of those shows where I know I'm not going to get through it all, but that's why God made tomorrow. Um, so... Oh, just a quick thing. There was an announcement this morning that Brett Baer and Martha McCallum of Fox News are going to host a town hall with Donald Trump from Iowa a week from tonight. And what's interesting about that is that's the same night that CNN is hosting a debate between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Can you imagine? I'm sure that... The Trump team got in touch with Fox and said, well, if you want me, you got to do it that night. That's how their team plays that game, right? That's how their team plays that game. And then I, I, I'm sure, you know, the, the anchors don't make these decisions. I mean, Brad is a pretty powerful dude as far as what interviews he wants to do and not, but he would not be the guy to make a decision like, are we going to do something that day and all that? That goes to the execs. And the execs, I'm sure, looking at CNN and thinking, you know, CNN having a Republican debate with the last two standing uh, serious content, serious ish contenders against Trump. That'd be a pretty big night for CNN. Wouldn't it be fun to, to stomp on them a little bit more, even though we're crushing them so much already by running counter programming and having Trump that night? And anyway, uh, you know, like I said, um, you know, cause, uh, this is all, this is all in addition to, I said God made tomorrow. In addition to that, God also made, v, uh, DVRs. So you can watch one and watch the other, but it's still kind of interesting that Fox is going to have Trump on the same night that CNN is having Haley versus DeSantis in what I note is not a, an official Republican National Committee sanctioned event. So, so Fox is not counter programming against the RNC, right? They're counter-programming against CNN having booked these two Republican candidates in something that isn't one of the official debates, but still I think it's, it's quite interesting. So a reporter, in the, I think this last night, a reporter asked President Biden as he was getting off a plane or helicopter, are you going to do anything about the border? And he said, well, we got to do something 
You know, they need to give us more money. And this is a thing that the, the Biden administration is trying to do right now. A uh, spokesperson over at the White House named Andrew Bates uh, gave a statement, uh, and I'm not going to bother quoting it, but basically he's trying to blame Republicans for the problem at the southern border. And they're saying, well, Republicans aren't working with us and they're not giving us the money. And, but here's the thing. There's two things. One, on an actual policy basis, the issue isn't it's not just money. Right. It's we have bad policies. We need to change the policies so that these people are not just simply allowed into the United States of America. They must not be allowed in, period. And, and if somehow they do get allowed in, then they must be kicked out again until such time as they get a court hearing. And if we need to change the law to do that, then we need to change the law. Between the number of people who have actually come in and presented themselves to Border Patrol and then been released into the United States, and then the number of people that we are guessing have gotten in because we, we're just, they're the gotaways, right? We've probably increased the illegal alien population of this country by somewhere between 50 and 100 percent in the Biden years. Right. However many illegal aliens there were when Biden became president, there's probably somewhere between. Well, it's got to be more than 50 percent. 50 percent are just the ones we know about. Assuming that the previous number that most people agreed upon, like 11 to 12 million, was right, because we know of six million. How many more don't we know? Is it another one million? Is it another six million? I don't know. But we're probably in the. 60, 70, 80, 90% increase in the number of illegal aliens. And this must be a massive issue in the coming campaign. And the Democrat White House now, the Biden White House, are trying to blame Republicans. So here's the, the political point I want to make. Oh, I should note, uh, something on the order of 60 members, Republican members of the House of Representatives are going to be on the border today in Eagle Pass, Texas. They're going to go down there. They're going to make a huge show of the border. And they should. Here's my political point. Nobody is going to buy the idea that anything going on on the southern border is the Republicans' fault. No matter how many times a White House spokesperson says it, no matter how many times someone coaches sleepy Joe Biden to say, you know, the Republicans need to give us more money. No one is going to believe this is the Republicans fault. You know why? Because it's not. And because it's obviously not because the border was as under control as it has been in a heck of a long time when Donald Trump left office. He really, I mean, that's one of his policies and, and actual outcome successes, getting control of the border. Biden, in his hurry to undo everything that Trump did just because Trump did it, changed everything, has caused this massive tsunami, and everybody knows it, and he's not going to be able to blame Republicans. And this, I think, is a messaging mistake on their part. The more they say this is Republicans' fault, the more people are going to say, are you calling me stupid? And it's it's going to not just not work. It's going to be a negative for them, much in the same way that as they try to talk about improvements in the economy, and surely there are some, 
People are going to look at improvements in the economy as happening despite Biden, not because of Biden. And the more he talks about the economy, the more people are going to be reminded at how much economically better off they were when the last guy was president. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. All right, a little uh, what is Steve Miller without the lyrics? Is that what we got? Or is this eventually going to get to It'll the lyrics? Get there eventually. Right. I know there are some ones in the system that only have the the music and they never have the words. No, it should be coming up, right? Yeah, I, 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 this song does have a, a long opening. We'll we'll see. I'm Ross. That's Dragon wearing a shirt I haven't seen before. I, it's it's kind of funny. Uh, it says in in big letters, "My wife is hot," and the, the top line is "My wife is." The second line is "hot," and then in much smaller letters, to the left of "hot," it says uh, "p s y c," and to the right of "hot," it says "i c." And I won't read it aloud in case Dragon's wife is listening right now. And here's Steve Miller singing after that very long song intro. This is a great song. Uh, did you play this for a reason or is it just... Have you looked at your show sheet recently? No, no. what does my show sheet say? What What time it's is it? It's a little morbid. Oh, yeah. All right, is this the, uh, the Salt know. Lake City story? Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, fine, fine. All right. Um... We'll talk about a jet airliner. Might as well. All right. All right. Yeah. Fine. The correlation is there. I know. It is there. It is there. Here's the head. I, I don't even have that much comment to add to this story, but this is from the Associated Press. A man was found dead inside an airplane engine Monday night at Salt Lake City International Airport after police say he breached an emergency exit door, walked onto the tarmac, and climbed inside the jet's engine. Shall I repeat the first part of that? A man was found dead inside an airplane engine Monday night. Officers found 30-year-old Kyler Effinger of Park City unconscious, in, unconscious inside an engine mounted to the wing of a commercial aircraft located uh, loaded with passengers. The plane had been sitting on a de-iced pad and its engines were rotating. He was a ticketed passenger with a boarding pass to fly to Denver. Okay. The manager of a store inside the airport reported a disturbance just before 10, telling dispatchers that he saw a passenger go through an emergency exit. Officers then found the guy's clothing, shoes, and other personal items on one of the runways. <sighs> After locating him, officers told air traffic controllers to notify the pilot to shut down the engines. The specific stage of engine operation remains under investigation. Right. Passengers were removed from the plane when he was found, but overall airport operations were not interrupted. And I guess all I want to say to this is 
Apparently, you can get magic mushrooms outside of Denver when you're coming to Denver. Here's the thing, people. Just because magic mushrooms are legal in Denver doesn't mean you should take them before coming here while at an airport and then run out onto the tarmac and jump into a en engine. I, big old jet airliner. Big old jet airliner. It doesn't seem like the right, the right place for much of anything, really, except air. I mean, you know what happens when birds get sucked into those things, right? Bad things. Bad things, yes. And bad things happen to this guy, although maybe not the exact same. Birds bad, are a touch things. smaller than Well, this we don't guy. know how big this guy was. True, but... What if it was an ostrich? I would lay my... <laughs> if an ostrich gets caught in a jet engine, you know? Okay. <laughs> I, I caught you off guard on that one. Yep. Sure did. <laughs> All right. Penguin. Here's Penguin. here's here's two separate ways to <laughs> to write a, a news headline about the same story. NBC News writes this headline. USA Boxing updates rule book to include strict transgender athlete policy. Right, so that's NBC News. USA Boxing updates rulebook to include strict transgender athlete policy. And then the New York Post, USA Boxing slammed for new transgender policy that allows biological men to compete against women. Now, I kind of like the, the second one better. Maybe I'm just displaying my own bias there. But when you read the first headline that says strict transgender athlete policy, you would be forgiven for believing, especially since we're talking about the sport of boxing, you would be forgiven for believing that a strict transgender policy would say something along the lines of, and I'm just going to make this up, and I am just making, just making this up. A strict policy might say something like, nobody who went through puberty as a male shall be allowed to box in any of USA Boxing's sanctioned female bouts, right? If you went through puberty as a male, you will not be allowed to box against a female. To me, that would be a sensible, strict transgender athlete policy. Instead, they've done something different. They have actually, they are allowing transgender women, meaning people who were born as men and are becoming women, to compete in the female category. Now, to be sort of fair or to just to be clear, I think I'm already being fair, to be clear, they, they do offer some pretty strict requirements. And I'm going to quote from the NBC piece here. Minors under the age of 18, and this is a small part of the sport, must compete as their birth gender. Okay, transgender women, meaning biological men becoming women, over the age of 18, can box against women if they undergo genital reassignment surgery and submit quarterly hormone tests for at least four years following the surgery and... The testosterone levels, I won't bore you with the numbers because they won't mean anything to you, but the testosterone levels need to be less than a certain concentration uh, in, in the blood.
So there you go. Transgender men have to meet similar requirements, apparently. They have to undergo genital reassignment surgery as well. And they also have to have testosterone level tests. But their numbers need to be above something cons consistently for at least four years. I don't think anybody is really worried about someone who went through puberty as a woman and is now becoming a man boxing against biological males, right? Now, there's a whole separate question you could get into about how much testosterone is too much. So I don't know what USA Boxing, a lot. like for example, does USA Boxing test male boxers for performance enhancing drugs and is testosterone one of them? So that if your testosterone level is above X, where X is above, well above normal for a man, then could you be excluded from a USA boxing match for performance enhancing drugs? I do not know the answer to that. Uh, I, they should not let somebody who was born female be able to push the testosterone levels to whatever those numbers are that a biological male would be excluded for. Um, I think, is that, did I say that clearly enough, Dragon? Uh, but in any case, I, I just think like of of. All the sports, I mean, there's lots, actually, where you just should never allow somebody who went through puberty as a man to compete against women. There, there are actually lots of them. There's lots of them. But boxing? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Uh, do, do you, I, I'm not saying that there's no female boxer who could beat a transgender woman boxer who, you know, went through puberty as a man. I'm not saying it's impossible but just the size and strength advantages on average of a, a male boxer against on average a female boxer is going to be really significant. And I, I suspect that the risk of se serious physical harm to a biological female going up against a transgender female who went through puberty as a male, I suspect that these risks are large and uh, part of what throws this whole conversation into a, a messy area it, it's kind of like when people say the word donald trump or the words donald trump in a political context then people's brains go a little crazy and people on the left say and do dumb things and people on the right say and do dumb things you know and and you get this whole thing with with transgender where there are a lot of people out there who really just uh, actively oppose transgender people don't like transgender people are bigoted against transgender people don't want them to be able to do anything um that kind of and i'm i'm not there I've got no issue at all with transgender people. I've got no issue at all with LGBT anything. I'm not conservative. I'm not religious. I'm not Christian. I, I don't live your life. Be happy. Okay. What I, my only issue here is the fairness for the sport. And I think most people are where I am. I think the majority of the country is where I am, which is to say, got no issue at all, no bias against transgender people, but people who went through puberty as men should not be allowed to compete against women in sports where physical strength and stamina is an important factor.
There's even arguments about whether transgender women should be able to compete against biological women in chess, believe it or not. I don't remember if I explained that on the show. You're looking at me with a little confusion, Dragon, so at least you probably didn't hear me mention it. Um, so I'll do that in one second, actually, because it's kind of interesting. But when you're talking about things like long-distance bicycle racing or even short-distance bicycle, but, you know, bicycle racing, uh, speed skating, uh, anything that involves strength and stamina, uh, I think I've beaten this horse enough, but... We just can't allow people who went through puberty as males to compete against women. It's just not fair. And I realize that the, I, I, I'm just going to assume for the sake of this conversation that the transgender woman is a person who is truly in her mind, and I will say her, in her mind, a woman who was, to use an overused term, trapped in the wrong body before. And I know some of these folks. And it's not a game, and it's not fun, and it's not optional for them. It's, it's exceedingly difficult and challenging. And, and furthermore, with these rules that a person has to have actually undergone genital reassignment surgery... I mean, that's for people who are not kidding around, right? You are absolutely committed. This is who I am. So I want to make something really clear. I believe that. And, and I feel bad for a person like that, not, not for being a person like that. I feel bad for a person like that who is an athlete who wants to compete, who would not be able to compete against women, against the category that this person is living in now as a human, living her daily life as a human, but would not be able to compete against other women because of the rules I would put in place. I do feel bad for that. And it's a little unfair, if you want to use that word, to that one person. But allowing that one person to compete is unfair to orders of magnitude more other people. It's unfair to to let this person compete. To not let this person compete might feel unfair to that one person. To let that person compete is unfair to everybody that person is competing against. And that's got to be that's got to be where the the winning argument is. Oh, the chess thing. It's kind of interesting. When I first heard this thing about U.S. Ch uh, or international chess and U.S. chess like had a difference of opinion. And I don't remember who was, you know, which group was where, but one person was going to allow transgender women, meaning biological, biologically born males to compete against other women. And another group said, no, we're not doing that. And I, I don't remember all the details of the story. And I made a comment like, why would it matter? And I think it was a listener who texted in Dragon and said, the reason that it matters is if you grew up as a male playing chess, because so many more men play chess than women. If you grew up as a male playing chess, you probably faced much stronger competition than if you grew up as a woman playing chess. Now that, that, and that, that is not about men being smarter or anything like that. It is about there literally a hundred times more men play chess. So just based on the averages, there's just going to be a lot more of the greatest players who are men. 
strictly based on numbers, assuming equal intelligence and chess intelligence on average between men and women, assuming no chess playing ability difference between men and women. With so many more men playing, if you grew up playing as a guy, you will have faced better players and maybe some worse too, but you will have faced the better players. And so if you grew up training against that, and then you go play in the category uh, with biological women who grew up only playing women's chess among other women who haven't faced the strength of competition that you have faced because you grew up playing as a guy, that's unfair to them. Uh, and I, I don't say that I know enough about chess to have a really strong opinion as to whether that should be the winning argument, but it was a super interesting argument that I never that I never thought of before. So anyway, there you go, Dragon. I want to told you that since you clearly hadn't heard it before. Uh, Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, who was already in big trouble for being an functioning as an unregistered agent, effectively of of Egypt, and taking bribes to help a guy who had a halal meat business um, do business with Egypt. So he apparently took these bribes. He's under federal indictment and his wife. And he took apparently cash and gold bars and maybe a car and both of them. And what? Your watches too, right? Yeah. Oh, right. Expensive watch. Yeah, that's right. He, there was a whole thing where he, uh, like he, he emailed a guy a picture of a watch. Like, how about one of these? Yeah. This guy just shameless, right? And, and now he's in trouble. For another thing, and this is receiving gifts from Qatar. This is from CNN. Federal prosecutors allege that Senator Bob Menendez accepted race car tickets and other gifts from Qatar as part of a years-long corruption scheme with the Gulf nation joining Egypt as another foreign country the New Jersey Democrat is accused of helping while in office. By the way, this guy was, he's not now, he had to step down, not from the Senate, but from his role as chairman of the House, what is it called, House Foreign... Affairs Committee, Foreign, eh, I forget, House and, House and Senate have, have different uh, names for those, for, or Foreign Relations Committee, maybe. Doesn't matter. He, but he was chairman of it. And, and he, meanwhile, he's taking bribes from these foreign countries and, and from foreigners to help them with the foreign countries. And it's just absolutely unbelievable. I cannot wait to see this guy's perp walk and see him and his wife in the orange jumpsuit behind bars. I cannot wait. Cannot wait. Right, let me do just a couple more minutes on Harvard and the resignation of Claudine Gay. I mentioned earlier in the show, before you got here this morning, uh, Dragon, that that Claudine Gay was extremely undistinguished as an academic. And in about 20 years since getting her PhD and then being a professor at Harvard and being dean of faculty and being president, she's published 10 articles and zero books. And AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, they just compared her with not the president of Pencil, the University of Pennsylvania who just resigned, but the woman who was president of the University of Pennsylvania just before her, right? And that woman um, had written over a dozen books and written over a hundred articles. And she was also a female political science professor, just like Claudine Gay is. So Claudine Gay has really not ever done anything and the little that she did, she plagiarized. So she didn't deserve the job to begin with. And this, I think, is an important thing for Harvard to look at. I will note one other thing before I get to this uh, insane piece by Jonathan Chait, that Claudine Gay is not the cause. 
I mean, she's a cause of a couple of things, but she's really a symptom. And there is rot. It is DEI rot all the way down. It doesn't start with Claudine Gay. It starts with the people who hired Claudine Gay, the people who run what's called the Harvard Corporation. We've talked already about Penny Pritzker and her and her, you know, fu money because uh, she's a, an heir to the Hyatt Hotels fortune. They're the people who'd hired her, and they're still there. So unless that gets cleaned up, Harvard's not really going to get much better. Now, I just want to take two minutes. And talk about this really nutty article by Jonathan Chait, who is a liberal with whom I often disagree, but I normally think of him as an honest liberal and a pretty smart guy. He's, just, he's wrong a fair bit, but he's a pretty smart guy. And he just came, he, he was just crazy in this piece. He wrote about the House hearings. He said they were a trap. Well, first of all, what did you expect if you are a woke professor at a woke university where there are pro-terrorism and anti-Israeli and anti-Semitic protests going on, and you're going to be questioned by Republican members of the House of Representatives. I, I mean, of course it's a trap. Prepare like it's a trap. If you can't handle a trap as the president of Harvard a political science professor, having been coached by an $800 an hour lawyer, then what are you doing in that job? Jonathan Chait also said, Republicans tried to get Gay and her fellow presidents to admit that protest slogans like from the river to the sea amounted to calls for genocide for the Jewish people. Well, that's because they do. Now, Chait says the charge is an oversimplification. The slogan means different things to different people. All of them bad, but not all of them necessarily genocidal. Are you really going to try to nuance your way out of this? Is it, would, would it be, would it be an oversimplification for people who are walking down the street, putting their hands up, palms out, saying Heil Hitler? Would it be an oversimplification to charge those people with wanting the genocide of Jews? Would you let them get away with that? From the river to the sea has always meant eliminate every Jew from Israel. It's always meant it. Ugh. And then, this is the part that really got me. And some others. He goes after Christopher Rufo, who is a guy over at the Manhattan Institute who was really spearheading the effort to find and publicize gays plagiarism and it's just it's pretty nuts actually uh he goes about saying that christopher rufo doesn't have he goes after people who hold higher ethical standards than he christopher rufo does what this woman apparently plagiarized some amount of, there's some amount of plagiarism in everything she's ever written or in almost everything she's ever written cuz she's only written about 10 things that got published and there's some plagiarism in in most or all of them the idea that somehow this was a trap set for Claudine Gay by the dastardly 
Chris Rufo. Neither of whom ever heard of each other. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Other, back when she started writing her PhD dissertation, is really, really nuts. And this is one of the dumbest defenses of Claudine Gay that I've ever seen. And all these people who are defending her are beclowning themselves. When we come back, the use of AI to create the first new antibiotics in decades is an incredible story. Kaminsky on KOA 850 AM 941 FM and on iHeartRadio. So there are a lot of folks out there who are, I guess I'd call them technophobes, and, and also in much the same way that you hear about the news, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, and they like to sell us bad stories because people go click on bad stuff and watch news about bad stuff. There's there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence that just spends to we tend to spend all our time focusing on like are the robots going to kill us next year or the year after right but the artificial intelligence holds so much promise and this story that I saw coming out of MIT is just a perfect example of what AI will be able to do for us when in the right hands. And the right hands are uh, my guest's hands. Dr. Jim Collins is a professor of medical engineering and science uh, and biological engineering as well at MIT. He's one of the founders of the field of synthetic biology and a headline from MIT from their website using AI MIT researchers identify a new class of antibiotic candidates. So with that very long introduction, Jim, welcome to KOA. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Ross. So uh, before we get into exactly what you did, could you please briefly describe for us the specific problem you're trying to solve? Like what is MRSA is what I'm getting at. Yeah, so MRSA is a resistant strain. It's methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. So it's one of the more commonly seen antibiotic-resistant bacterial pathogens. So we can find it, for example, on athletic fields. You can find it on wrestling mats in homes. And it, by being resistant, means that this pathogen has evolved protection against the antibiotics that we would use to treat it. And if left untreated, could lead, for example, to amputation or in the worst case, even to death. And tell me if I'm wrong, my, my recollection is that MRSA is somewhat frequently acquired in hospitals and nursing homes as well. Um, and not that that matters very much, but is that true? You know, it does, it does matter. I, as I tell my students, worst place to be when you're sick is a hospital. Mm -hmm. Get out as quickly as you can, mm -hmm. primarily because of the Super Bowl that have evolved and are present. And so one of the biggest risks of being in a hospital is you're going to catch one okay. of these nasty resistant strains. And that includes MRSA as well as many other. Okay. So you're trying to, that have unfortunately developed. you're trying to solve a problem of there are now bacteria out there that cannot be killed by existing antibiotics. And a lot of people have been trying to solve this problem for a while. MRSA is not a brand new thing. So what's, what was your uh, approach? How did you do this differently? 
so what we did is we used artificial intelligence. So the way one usually goes after trying to find a new antibiotic is that you'll look at a large library of potential drug compounds that you'll screen one by one in the lab. It's very expensive to do, takes a long time. What we did instead was take a small library of such compounds, apply it to the pathogen underlying MRSA, look to see which ones had some antibacterial activity, which ones did not, use those data along with the structural information around those compounds that we could then use to train a mathematical model, a computer model based on AI that we then could apply to massive libraries involving many millions of compounds that would have been impossible for us to screen and enabled us now to actually identify new drugs that actually could be used against MRSA and other bacterial pathogens. When you say identify a new drug, does this mean that you identified a compound that already existed somewhere in a database, or does this mean that the AI told you, here is the structure, the chemical structure of the new drug that you need to create? Yeah, in this case, we use the AI to look at structures that were already available or had already been established inside a database. And so it's one that already is out there. And we use the AI model to say, you don't even need to run the experiment. We're going to look at the structure and predict this would be a good antibiotic. And we're able to show, in fact, that the AI model was really good at finding those. And the beauty of these AI models is that you can look at, for example, 100 million compounds in just three days using just a university computer. And imagine now, if you had an industrial computer, you could look at billions of compounds in the same amount of time. So at the, at the moment, I know there's a lot more work for you to do. At the moment, how many compounds have you identified that appear likely to be effective against at least some forms of MRSA? So in this, we've identified two very promising candidates as part of this new class of compounds that appear to be really quite effective against MRSA. Okay. So if you're saying that these are compounds that existed already, why were they not tried before against MRSA? Or have they yeah, it, it, so two, two big reasons. One is that they were found in very, very large databases. And so it's challenging and expensive to run those experiments against the pathogen of interest. Two is there's not a lot of interest in antibiotic development. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, with the number of resistance strains growing decade upon decade, and these superbugs not only being found in hospitals, but being found in our schools and our gyms, in our churches, that unfortunately companies are not getting into antibiotics because the economic market is broken. Costs just as much to develop an antibiotic as it does a cancer drug or a blood pressure drug. Whereas you can sell the cancer drug and the blood pressure drug for expensive prices over the course of the lifetime of the patient, antibiotics are sold very cheaply and you take it once. And so there's just not the money to address what unfortunately is a growing crisis, that is this emergence of resistant bacterial pathogens. All right, I've got two-ish minutes left and I have so many more things I want to ask you. So let's just deal with that problem then for a second. You've identified a compound. There isn't probably a, pardon me, a ton of money to be made for a yeah. pharma company making it, even though it'll be a lifesaver in the, in the scale of things. You know, a, a lot of people get MRSA only, only 20,000 a year or so die in the United States from it. So it's, it's not asthma and arthritis, right, in terms of the quantity of yeah. people. So how do you go get this? Who makes the drug for you now when you need it? How are you going to get it? Yeah, so two two points to that. One is we've actually launched a nonprofit called FairBio that's taking the most promising molecules out of our antibiotics AI project and looking to advance those towards the clinic. The second is I think we need to change the model. 
for how we develop antibiotics. I think we need public-private partnerships. We need to subsidize it from nation states to say, look, with a small investment, you could address one of these big crises. When you talk to any smart person and ask them to list the things they're most fearful about, antibiotic resistance is on that list. And it's the cheapest of those crises, mm -hmm. those existential threats to be solved. Interesting. All right, last question, and this is going to go in a slightly different direction. Before we went on the air, you told me that your funding comes from a combination of nonprofits and government. Um, if you come up, and, and you, you already sort of partly answered this question by saying that uh, even though these drugs are very, very important for the people who need them, not that many people need them in the scale of medicine. So um, what are the, the finances of this? Like, could, can your lab... Um, well, I guess the drug exists already. Is, is there a way for your lab to monetize this? And do you even care about that? Is the only purpose of this, for, from your perspective, find the drug and find a way to get it to people for cheap or free? So my, my interest is the latter, and that is, can we find the compound to then make it a drug to get it to the patients who need it, and where can you go? We don't have ambitions right now to try to monetize it for two reasons. One is that the market is broken, so it's probably not a great effort. Mm -hmm. And two, our goal is to have impact. And right now, we think our best impact is to try to discover these new ones and hand them off to folks who could develop them. We hope that the world will be waking up, given what we all went through on the viral side, that bacterial pathogens are equally problematic. And we need nation states, we need private groups, and we need wealthy individuals stepping up to take this on as a cause. Wow. Jim Collins is professor of uh, medical engineering and biological engineering at MIT, and he and his team have just used AI to find the first new class of antibiotic candidates um, in in 60 years or so against what has been a really intractable problem. It's an incredible use of AI, and it must be a spectacular team that you've got around you, and uh, I'm sure you're a great leader of that team. It's been a pleasure having you. I, I definitely hope you'll come back on the show. I will, Ross. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. And congratulations. Thanks, Ross. Take care. Gosh, isn't that just amazing? So look, AI, I don't know if it's going to kill us all, but it's definitely not the only thing it's going to do. It might save us all in the meantime. I knew I needed to go look at the show sheet now because Dragon's going to make me talk about something based on that. I'm like that song didn't come out of nowhere. So then Correct. I had to go look yes. and see. Like, okay, what? I'm I, sorry. What I'm I following the show sheet. I know you put together. I know. I know. It's your own roadmap. I know. It's my own roadmap. I'm all over the map. Uh, so, yeah, Dragon. Have you ever heard of a company called BYD? I have not. BYD, this is the part of the story that's interesting to me. BYD is a Chinese electric car company. They make hybrid cars and they make all electric cars. And I saw two stories about uh, Tesla. I actually saw a few stories about Tesla. This one, uh, New York Times story, Tesla sales jumped during the last three months of 2023 after the car maker slashed prices and customers rushed to take advantage of tax breaks on electric vehicles, provisions that will be harder to come by in 2024. The company said on Tuesday that it sold 484,000 cars in the fourth quarter, up from 435,000 in the third quarter and 405,000 in the fourth quarter of last year. 
for, uh, okay, I'll stop there. You get the idea. So Tesla sold a bunch of cars, uh, 484,000 cars in the fourth quarter. And so, so I'm reading through, I'm reading through this, this article and I see a mention of a company called BYD. And I, I have heard of BYD, but I never really dug into it very much. And they say in this New York Times piece, Tesla faces intense competition from BYD and other Chinese automakers. And, and, and I'm reading about this. And, and what I've learned, this is just unbelievable. This is also from the New York Times. The Chinese corporate giant BYD said on Monday, now, before I give you the number, let me just make clear that this includes, um, hybrids and, all all electric cars but last year they sold 3 million cars so of it of that 1.4 million was hybrid and 1.6 million fully electric 1.6 million fully electric cars so that, that that's actually more than tesla um and then 1.4 million hybrids on top of that. And the reason I mention it is, is simply because I bet you never heard of them. And I, isn't that incredible? Like the biggest electric car company in the world is a Chinese company that you never heard of. Furthermore, and this is different from Tesla. China, uh, BYD, at least they reported a one and a half billion dollar profit. Um, in, I guess, the last six months, if I, if I understood the, the story right. It's just absolutely in, insane. And, you know, this is the world we live in and, and China is. So here, here's the thing that we need to understand about China. And I'm just going to leave aside political stuff and geopolitics and all that. So it used to be that we thought about China as a place that just made really cheap versions of stuff, junk that wouldn't last very long, and that they would take stuff that other places made and take it apart and reverse engineer it and then copy it and just make cheap versions and sell them back to the world. And let me make something very clear, and this is not sarcasm. That's all true, but that used to be pretty much all they did. Right. And so the reputation was we don't have to worry about China. The, the quality of production is not very good. They're not very creative. They're not very inventive. Yeah. They steal a lot of, a lot of intellectual property and they steal a lot of people's stuff. And this is bad and we need to deal with it. I'm not saying all that stuff is okay, but I'm saying it's kind of all they used to do, but it's not like that anymore. China is just full of actual brilliant creative people, many of whom went to college and graduate school here in the United States of America, not all, but many. And by the way, when you've got many people <clears throat> who go to MIT and Caltech and Stanford and even Harvard and Columbia and go back to China, you got to remember, it's not just, hey, you know, these guys are, and gals are going to be doing such and such work. These guys and gals can become teachers. And they can create the next generation of incredibly brilliant scientists and engineers in China. So I think it's really important that everybody understands, especially that when we later start, I don't mean later today, but when we later start thinking about things like geopolitics and international trade, it's true that China did and, and still does 
steal a lot of stuff, reverse engineer stuff, and make a lot of junky products. But it is no longer the only thing they do. Now they are serious competitors with serious brains making serious products, and we need to never forget it. When we come back, if you are a video game nerd, I got a story that's going to blow you away. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. All right, so my uh, my listeners know that I'm I'm a tech nerd. I've been a tech nerd for a long time. I'm not the nerdiest of all tech nerds, but for a radio show host, I'm pretty nerdy. And you know, I bought my first computer in 1981, an Apple II Plus. Uh, anyway, so I, I, I've been into this stuff, and I played a lot of uh, arcade games as a kid. I'm not really a gamer now, but a lot of stuff when I was young. So there's um, there's a sort of tech-ish newsletter that I've been reading for many years called Tedium, T-E-D-I-U-M, dot co not dot com tedium dot co and uh and it's run by a dude named ernie who has been on the show with me before but not recently several years ago and ernie just put out uh, a story on tedium that uh, i thought it was pretty cool and i could also just tell by the way ernie wrote the story that he really loved this one you know when you read somebody's writing for a long time you can kind of tell what they really love and what they're just sort of like so this story is called we beat the machine and joining us to talk about it the man himself ernie smith proprietor of tedium.co hey ernie thanks for being here hey how's it going it's going great it's going absolutely great so this is a story about the game tetris which has been around a long time but i didn't even know people were still playing it and yet you were just telling me there's a particular record and you're going to describe what it is that that these players have been chasing really hard for a couple of years and something happened yeah, so basically what ended up happening was a a 13-year-old player ended up basically beating Tetris, an unbeatable game, essentially by breaking it so that the game crashed. So you were telling and, me yeah, sorry, but you were you'll tell me before we went on the air that that the record that these guys were chasing is actually a multi-part record and I'm guessing uh, you know quite a few people listening right now have played Tetris. So can you describe what it was that they were trying to do? Yeah, so for a number of years it was, you know, they've been trying to basically, you know, sort of break the game at its limits. Uh, they basically have been, you know, as a community trying to, uh, you know, try to get further and further into the game. And they've determined via a number of factors that if they're able to reach level 155 or 157 or whatever, that they can actually make it so that the game will, will crash because it runs out of memory. And they haven't been able to do it until 
until this kid uh, uh, goes by the name Blue Scooty managed to manage to pull this off. And the video of it's pretty dramatic. It's a nearly 40 minute run. So so like, you know, he's basically playing Tetris for 40 minutes straight, which is pretty aggressive for anybody. <laughs> so you, it's, you know, he basically in the in the midst of all this, he he managed to not only catch this one, you know, game breaking record, he also set the high score for the game at like more than 6.8 million and you know at level 157 which is what he reached he he basically got higher than any other player in history of playing nes tetris wow so i i'm reading in your piece over at tdm.co um that so you said the first thing to, f to fail was the score like so it couldn't even show his score anymore the, the next thing though is really interesting he says the second to fail was the original kill screen a level 29 that moved so quickly that if you played using a traditional controller layout you could not move your fingers fast enough to keep up so th that fascinated me so how how are they playing to defeat a level that was designed to be unbeatable because you literally couldn't move your fingers fast enough? Uh, they basically have come up with a variety of techniques, um, one of which is hypertapping, which is essentially pressing the arrow keys as quick as possible. But what they've recently been doing, uh, which is like really opened up the game so they've been able to reach way past level 29, is this technique called rolling, where essentially rather than pressing the top of the controller, they basically just repeatedly like push against the bottom and then push their finger into the controller, which sounds really weird, but basically what it leads to is that they can actually tap much faster that way than you know using a controller in the way that you would go to come to expect. All right, so what do these controllers look like? Which, what, what are they? Just standard Nintendo controllers. So basically, they're playing it like a traditional Nintendo controller, but rather than pressing the keys from the top, they're basically pressing up, pressing the controller up into their fingers. Unbelievable. So this kid is 13 so, years old, and he just did something that people have been trying to do for however long Tetris has existed on Nintendo? Yeah, pretty much. And the thing, the thing is, he was very new to sort of this competitive Tetris play. Tetris play has been, you know, really picking up in, in speed and interest over the last few years. But, uh, you know, Blue Scooty, he's only been really playing competitively for about the last nine months or so. He actually reached the semifinals in the world championship. And there was another player who, uh, named Fractal, who was actually trying to reach the same goal that he was, but Blue Scooty actually beat him to it. Wow. That, that's so cool. A 13-year-old kid. Did he, did he win money? Can you make money at this? Like, my kid plays Fortnite and actually is good enough to, to make some money, um, which one of my producers is very, very jealous of because he knows he's not nearly as good as my kid. But um, can, can this kid make some money at this? In tournament play, I, I believe that there are some, you know, like financial prizes for all this. So it's, you know, 
Yeah, if you're really good at playing video games and you know the right tournaments and are willing to play it in a semi-professional setting, like it's possible to win some money. Hmm. I, again, I, I love the fact that this is a 13-year-old kid and that the the guy who was um, who like won the the world championship just before was a, a college student, and which is normally like the age where you would expect somebody to win this kind of thing. And, and a 13 year old who hadn't even been playing that long just crushed him. And I also just as a guy who played a lot of arcade games when I was a kid, although I didn't play any of them very well, but I loved it. But just just the idea of being good enough at a game that you get to the end of it. You know, you hear that from time to time about Pac-Man and maybe a couple others, but j just hearing those stories takes me back to my childhood. Yeah, same, same for me. And, you know, it's it's really fascinating because I'm, I'm sure that, like, the average person would have probably quit well before level 29. <laughs> but, you know, to see, to see people just basically taking this game that's been around forever and essentially kind of breaking it apart at the seams just to see what they can get away with. It's, it, it just blows my mind. It's, it's really one of the most fascinating stories like I've seen in quite some time. And it's also like a very positive tale of just like, you know, People beating the machines, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Well, folks, if you want to go read this story, uh, you can go to tedium, T-E-D-I-U-M dot C-O, and you can sign up to get uh, Ernie's emails. It won't cost you anything. It's a really fun read if you're even a little bit of a tech nerd, which I am. Ernie, how long have you been doing this? Because I, I think I've been reading your your stuff. I won't say I've never missed one, but I think I've been reading your stuff since... Maybe since around when you started. I feel like I've been reading it for a decade or something. Uh, we just celebrated our ninth anniversary. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I think, I think I've been with you since near, since near the beginning. So congratulations on sticking around for that long on a website. Not everybody does that. And, and, and thanks for just bringing such cool offbeat stories. I really appreciate it. Yeah. No problem. Thanks for being here. That's Ernie Smith, proprietor of Tedium, T-E-D-I-U-M dot C-O. I know, not the kind of story you're normally going to get on a, on a radio talk show, and that is exactly why I brought it to you. I hope you found that kind of interesting. Nerd! Yeah, I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming. Yeah, but I'll take it for myself, too, because I... You know, big fan of video games and whatnot. Yeah. So, so I've only ever played Tetris a little bit, and I don't remember what platform it, it was on. Maybe some little handheld thing. Game Boy, Game Boy. Yeah, color, like probably. a game, like an yeah. early Game Boy. Yeah. Maybe. Did you ever play it on oh, on one of those things? Of course. Yeah. I was never great. Regular NES, and yeah, my wife's big Doctor Mario fan, which is very similar. Yeah. To Tetris, but not quite. Does that kid in there who thinks he's good at Fortnite play Tetris? He yeah, he's not responding. To <laughs> I think it was the whole Fortnite thing. Uh huh. The, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. He's, he's not happy. Okay, all right. So I saw a headline. So headlines are really important. The way headlines are written makes a really big deal for two reasons. One is a headline is written in order to get you to click on, on online, let's say, in order to get you to click on something because when they click on something, they get to add to their statistics of the number of people who come to their site. They get to show you an ad. It, they get to directly or indirectly make more money by getting you to click. And so writing these headlines is very important for that. And then from the consumer side, writing the headlines is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, kind of the, the flip side of that same coin I just described, which is, okay, is this story interesting enough 
for me to want to go and read more. And secondly, a lot of people might not take the time to click and go read the story more, but will infer things from the headline and think they understand the story well enough to then just go move on and not bother reading anymore. And that's why I, I completely understand people writing headlines in a way that are attractive to go get the clicks. I get it. But I also think that you need to, I don't know, sometimes I feel like headlines are written in a way that are misleading. And I'm not actually sure if this one is, if this one is misleading, and I'll let you decide, it is, it's misleading due to omission, not commission. So the headline is, Jeffrey Wright, who I guess is an actor, I don't know this dude. Jeffrey Wright says a movie studio dubbed in another actor's voice after he refused to censor himself saying the N-word. So there's a picture of this dude. He looks to me like an African-American gentleman. He's wearing a black turtleneck, a, uh, a very sharp sport coat, and some, and some stylish uh, kind those of gray seen, glasses. For those who have seen the most recent adaptation of Westworld, he was Bernard. If that, that helps. Did you out. just look that up or did you know? No, I knew that one. Yeah. And he's also in the Marvel series What If? He plays the Watcher. But it's an animated series, so you don't see him, but it's the same actor. You knew all that without looking it up? Correct. I bet A-Rod at least knew the Marvel part. Probably, yeah. He, he says he knew all of it. Westworld 2. Westworld 2, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, so there's the headline. Jeffrey Wright says a movie studio dubbed in another actor's voice after he refused to censor himself saying the N-word. So, Drag, when I just read the headline, what's the first thing that comes to your, to your mind? Movie studio dubbed in another actor's voice after he refused to censor himself saying the N-word. What comes to your mind just... Don't overthink it. Just, have, yeah, but I have to th I have to think into it and you have to read it and everything. But yeah, it sounds like, oh, he is he him bad for, you know, saying it. Hmm. So what I for 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 saying the Edward or wanting for, to say the Edward? Say, yeah, for wanting to say it for saying it. Yeah. yeah. All right, and my take was that's very interesting. My my gut reaction was that I think what they want me to think from reading the headline is that he wants to like be real and and use the N word in whatever context it is, and that like uh, woke white people won't let him, you know. That, that's that, that's interesting. So you and I reacted to it in very, very different very ways, different, yeah. which which is also kind of why I'm not sure the headline is misleading, but. Here's the actual story, which I, I think is quite different from how many people would infer whatever it is they infer from the headline. The actual story is that this guy was hired to do uh, some voicing for a version of a movie that was going to be played on airplanes when people are flying, you know, and and there's a line in the movie, a couple of lines in the movie where one of the characters uses the N-word. Um, I'm, I'm looking for, it's uh, Ang Lee's 1999 Civil War set Western, Ride with the Devil. And in the movie, Wright plays 
uh, a former slave. So this is one of his one of his previous roles, right? He he plays a former slave. Says being that man's friend was no more than being his N word, and I will never again be anyone's N word. And so they wanted him to, I guess, to voice those lines again uh, for the movie version, for the airplane version, replacing the N word with something else that is less offensive to many people. And he refused to. I don't travel on planes that often. So is the screen that you are watching that's in you know the, the headrest of the seat in front of you, is that audible to everybody else? No. So it's, then, it's only audible to you in your headphones. So then why? Why? Why censor him? Yeah. So my experience is that there's, you know, hundreds of people on an airplane. Now, these days, there's 200 movies to choose from. But it, it used to be that there'd be just a couple of movies you could choose from. And it, it, it seems to me that. You could have a lot of really just kind of sensitive folks on airplanes who aren't snowflakes or whatever. Maybe they're older, maybe they're younger, and just don't want to hear the N-word, really wouldn't like it. And and I think that it's it's I think that it's actually kind of reasonable. I think it's reasonable uh for the airline to say, no, we don't want the N-word in a in a movie that, you know. People are going to, especially if it's not, I, I, I don't, I suppose I, I kind of get it because they are the, the airline is the consumer of the product, the movie. So yeah. then they will be redistributing it. So yes, they can do that, but I think they're protecting their customers a little bit. Well, didn't trying to, didn't Mandy work in the airplane business? I did. So did, did you hear, first of all, Happy New Year and welcome Happy back. Happy New Year to you. Yeah. How I'm was back. Ryan and how was Cheese? Oh, I regret nothing. That's all I can say. Uh -huh. It was so absolutely incredible. The best vacation that I've ever planned myself in my life. It was just magical. I cannot wait to go back to Switzerland. I really? absolutely loved it. Wow. Loved it. What, did you, All right. We'll, we'll get off the airplane thing for a second because I just got to hear about your trip. So... You, I know you went at least a little sometime in a German-speaking part, sometime also in the yeah, French-speaking part. We started out in Lausanne, which is in the southwest part of Switzerland, right over by France. Mm -hmm. France, so it's very French. Mm -hmm. And and what's interesting about Switzerland is you have French portions, you have German portions, you have Italian portions, but everyone is Swiss. Right. Regardless of what language they speak in those areas, they could speak French, German, they could speak Italian, they could speak another dialect. There's like 400 different dialects in Switzerland. They are all Swiss people. That is their primary national identity is mm -hmm. that they are Swiss. And we started out in the French part in Lausanne and went to Montreux. And then we went up to Zurich, which is just this incredibly beautiful, clean city. But it's very German. So you have a much different experience just food wise. There's different food. There's the language is different in the and it was just I loved Switzerland. Switzerland is what Denver wants to be. Wow. So Zurich is what Denver wants to be, but we have some huge issues here that will prevent us, not the least of which is our population. Okay, I don't care about Denver. I want to talk about Switzerland. So yeah. so to the extent that you saw differences between places, yeah. could you generalize 
and I don't mean uh, food and language, but personalities and people. Were there clear differences between the French parts and the German parts, or were they just all Swiss, versus were there clear differences, as there are in lots of places, no, between smaller towns and big cities? We did not feel that at all. We loved all, everyone that we met. I mean, we talked to you know we talked to cab drivers, and we talked to our servers, and we talked to everyone when we travel. Everyone was incredibly kind. Everyone was uh, had very strong opinions about the United States, by the way. Mm -hmm. very, they're, they're looking at us like, what the blank are you people doing with these two candidates? Yeah. That's honestly what they're looking at us like, what the hell? And every single one of them said, do you people not realize how important you are to the rest of the world? And that this is, you are screwing up the rest of the world by what you're doing? And I was like, trust me, I know. I know. Trust me. I know. It was just, it's, it's a great country. It is... It is heart-stoppingly expensive. <laughs> I'll yeah. tell you that. Right. I mean, I, I don't want to see the credit card bill that, that, that we racked up on this one because this was an anniversary trip. It was kind of a no-holds-barred no trip, and we paid for a lot of it with miles. So we kind of, you know, like our hotel, our flights, all that stuff was just we paid for with miles. So it was it, it is expensive, but you get what you pay for. You Did know what you I mean? Did you go to any insanely expensive dinner? Yes. Tell yes. us about, just briefly, one really well, ridiculous dinner. When you, you hear what I had and what yeah. Chuck had and that it was obscenely expensive, you'll be like, what are you doing? But we went to a dinner at the last night because it was New Year's Day and everything was closed. So we're wandering around looking for any place that was open. And we found this beautiful restaurant. I, I, I can't remember the name of it right now. And uh, went in there and I had for dinner, I had a beet and shaved apple salad with horseradish that I swear to God was the best food I've ever put in my mouth in my entire life and then i had calf's liver and and uh potatoes roasty potatoes and chuck had they call it uh veal um like uh they call it zurich style and it's basically veal with a cream sauce and mushrooms and oh golly it was so good it was so good ross wine my mouth is no watering wine. now wine or no wine dessert i, I no had dessert? wine i had wine no wine. I, I had wine no dessert because by that point we had purchased so much swiss chocolate that we would just go back to the room and kind of like have a little nibble okay the swiss chocolate how much how much what money oh how much money for that I, dinner for that dinner. oh for that dinner that was probably that was probably 275 what yeah <laughs> 275 it's not 2.75, no, right? No, that is 275. And that's American. Yeah. So it was like 225 uh, Swiss francs. Wow. And that was by far the most expensive meal we had. But we did the Christmas markets. Oh, my God, Ross, it was the best trip ever. It was, well, I feel like having a slideshow party at my house and making should. all my friends come over and watch my slideshow. Well, that's kind, of what, do that. that's kind of what your Instagram is. All right. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's right. Folks, stick around for Mandy. I'm sure she'll tell you more wonderful travel stories. It's great to have you back, Mandy. Happy New Good Year. Good to be back. Thanks, man. All right. Talk to you all tomorrow. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.